Thanks very much everyone for coming. This presentation is really based on uh, the book which has recently been published and which looks particularly, it's an edited volume which looks particularly at four sectors, construction, uh, agriculture and food processing, the health sector, social care, financial services and hospitality. And the contributors are all experts in the field of labour markets in that particular sector, rather than necessarily being experts in immigration per se. And they're working within um, a framework of analysis that Martin and I develop in the uh, first chapter, and that's really what uh, we're going to discuss today, but really focusing on the question of Britain's reliance on migrant workers and whether or not that's inevitable particularly pertinent since the cap which has been uh, which the government has said is part of its commitment to reduce overall net migration to the tens of thousands is uh, so controversial as michael said the migration advisory committee are going to be coming out with their report on this uh, on the 18th of november that's next week uh, and for all intents and purposes we have re- the, uh, there's going to be a cap a permanent cap is going to be announced in april next year And that has generated a lot of controversy, most obviously, of course, uh, employers, but also Vince Cable, uh, who says that the cap may risk doing huge damage to British business. And we've also had the Home Affairs Select Committee report, which was published last week. And so the government is finding itself in quite a difficult position in practice, having committed to uh, limit the number of migrant workers as part of the uh, reduction in net migration. Uh, And there's already been a lot of discussion, particularly about intra-company transfers. Some people, particularly um, uh, some of the workers or or IT consultants, arguing that this this needs to be stopped, that intra-company transfers are undermining the labour market. And most recently, David Cameron suggesting that actually this is one area where they're not necessarily going to do a, a full a full cap on this whole area of limited exemption. So, as I said, we want to look at, well, is this reliance on migrant workers inevitable? And what you can see from the data, first and foremost, is that the share of foreign-born workers in, the total, in total employment in the UK doubled from less than 7% in the early 1990s to over 13% in 2009, But we do have to be cautious there about terminology. Note that I say foreign-born rather than migrant. Uh, If you actually look at those figures, then slightly over one-third of them are actually British nationals. That is, they are British workers. And so nuances of definition do have a big impact on the data. But that's not to contest that there has been a significant increase in the number of relatively new arrivals, and they tend to be concentrated in particular occupations. One example, in 2008 there were approximately 135,000 foreign-born care workers in the UK and over half of those had arrived before the year 2000. So there's some occupations where new migrants do um, figure particularly. And in general the growth and the use of migrant labour has tended to be in low-skilled, low-wage jobs. Labour force survey data suggests the share of migrants among so-called low-skill process operatives increased from 8% in 2002 to about 25% in 2009. So certain sectors, certain occupations, there has been uh, an increase in new migrants. 
And so the question of, you know, is this, why has this happened and is it inevitable, really is fundamental to government policy objectives. And we believe, we argue, that it requires a critical analysis of employers' arguments that migrant workers are needed to fill labour and skill shortages and that they're needed to do the jobs that locals can't do. So we want to begin by pointing out that there, is a real, there are real issues with definition when it comes to shortages and skills. They're actually very slippery concepts, despite the ease with which they're bandied about. So there's no universally accepted definition of either of those, and therefore no obvious optimal policy response. So the definition of shortage that typically underlies employers' calls for migrants to fill vacancies is that the demand for labour exceeds the supply at prevailing wages and conditions. So maybe if you were to pay care workers £50,000 a year, you might find British workers more likely to, to do that work. So the uh, most, most media reports about these labour and skill shortages are based on surveys that ask employers about hard-to-fill jobs at current wages and conditions. Now, of course, a basic economic approach would emphasise the importance of the price mechanism bringing labour labor markets into where you have uh, excess demand and decreased supply, so you'd expect the price of labour to go up. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Shortages are supposed to be eliminated by rising wages. Now, of course, in practice, labour markets don't necessarily work, as this rather simple model suggests, and prices can be very sticky. And also the supply of labour can be inflexible for various reasons. So there is a fundamental point here, which is the importance of recognising the um, price of labour and the role of the price of labour. But we'd also say that there are um, sociological approaches that are important too. So, for example, the importance of status, the importance of job status, of social status, and of also of fungibility of workers. Just because a job is low-skilled, we can't assume that just anybody can do it. If you think about, um, I don't know, an unemployed steel worker is unlikely to be applying for a job as a household cleaner, for example, and if they were, then they'd be unlikely to be employed in that job. You can't just move people uh, as pegs from A to B. Uh, and that points to the um, second definitional issue, which is what we mean by skills, which is a term that's commonly used in academic and public discourse. Um, but it's actually very vague, both conceptually and empirically, and also, let's not forget, it's a highly gendered term. Uh, so it can refer to a wide range of qualifications and competences. Uh, sometimes these can be credentialised, so um, NVQs, for example, or professional qualifications and apprenticeships. But actually, what's credentialised and what isn't can also shift, and um, many of you here will probably remember the uh, uh, debates about... Uh, social care workers and whether or not they and the, and the slippage from when, when they were considered to be skilled and when they became considered to be low skilled, which was nothing to do with the uh, kind of uh, skills that were required to actually do the job. And in fact, I think this points to an issue maybe for government, which is the um, problem of the Home Office using a quite a formal, technical, credentialised um, uh, definition. Uh, and the more general definition that you have within other government departments which talk about lifelong learning and recognise, for example, the importance of soft skills. And soft skills are very important and are increasingly important in a service economy. They cover a broad range of, of competences and they can be problem-solving, customer-handling, 
and uh, teamwork and all those sorts of um, soft skills, which can be particularly important in sectors where relations with customers and clients, in order to give a good service, a quality service, are important. And certain skills can be important in making sure that a service is done in, in, in a way that is a good service experience. So the quality of care that's delivered, for example, very much depends on the soft skills of those who are providing care. And uh, other Compass work has found that um, some service users actually prefer express a preference for personal qualities over formal qualifications. But at the same time, when you're talking about soft skills, this can easily slip over into attributes and characteristics that basically are related to employer control over the workforce. So a demand for soft skills can easily shade into a demand for employees who show <coughs> particular characteristics. Are they cooperative? Are they helpful? And so on. And the fuzziness of skill is also sort of heightened by its application to demeanour, to accent, sometimes even to physical appearance, um, as you see, for example, in some occupations within the hospitality sector. And as skills soften, these signifiers, appearance, accent and so on, can assume a greater importance. So any discussion of skill shortages needs to be aware that employers play an important role in defining the competencies and attributes that are needed to do particular jobs and in deciding the terms and conditions of the work that's available. And in some occupations, the skill and the work ethic, so-called, demanded by employers are actually partly or largely a reflection of employer preference for a workforce over which they can exercise particular mechanisms of control or that is prepared, for whatever reason, to accept um, lower wages and worse employment conditions than uh, British nationals. So why migrants? Well, one of uh, the key findings of the book is that demand and supply are intimately related and that what employers want is typically influenced very strongly by what they think that they can get from the labour market. And so, therefore, faced with a highly diverse pool of labour, employers can become particularly, uh, increasingly demanding of the type of workers that they need. And we find that this preference for migrant workers um, is reflected in employers' common claims, and I'm sure that um, you've got lots of examples, that, employer, that migrants have a superior work ethic, they have a better attitude, they're not as lazy as British workers, and so on. Uh, now, it's important in, to remember, in, with re reference to this and what I'm going to say about employer reasons for implying migrants, that actually, generally, this is about relatively new arrivals. So this is not the foreign-born that we see in the, in the data. Uh, it's not even necessarily people who've got settlement status. This is really for relatively new arrivals, very often. So, again, the terminology really matters. So employers can prefer migrants because of their lower expectations of wages and employment conditions. And employers are often very aware of the trade-off that migrants are willing to make in tolerating wages and employment conditions that are um, perhaps poor by the UK standards, but better than um, the conditions that they come from. And in, in uh, some sectors, as uh, agriculture, for example, employers openly acknowledge that the wages and employment conditions they offer for low-skilled work are considered unacceptable by British workers. So that's one reason. The second reason actually might be because of the characteristics and restrictions that are attached to immigration status. Now, this sounds somewhat perverse, 
Um, but immigration controls are often felt to be a means of protecting the local labour force. Well, one might argue that under, for certain occupations, in fact, they create a group of workers who are dependent on their employer for the renewal of their visa, for example, which make them, in fact, arguably more desirable than um, British nationals. So we have a wide range of, we have a wide range of um, restrictions, immigration restrictions, which can't be applied to citizens. And perhaps this can give rise to a specific demand for certain types of migrant workers, particularly those whom employers find difficult to retain in certain types of jobs. Thirdly, because of their different frames of reference, new migrants may be prepared to accept jobs whose skill requirements are significantly below their actual skills, what we term high-quality workers for low-waged jobs. So you might not actually be comparing like with like. You may be comparing a student or somebody with a degree or even a postgraduate degree who's working in a sector which perhaps they would never consider working in in their home country, but which they're prepared to work in in the UK. And I think we only have to imagine... Um, gap year students, for example, who British students who perhaps are quite happy to go off to Australia and work in um, picking, picking grapes in a way which they wouldn't, wouldn't consider working in agriculture, uh, in temporary agricultural work in the UK. But there might also be particular knowledge that um, these people bring, um, language is the most obvious one, and so sometimes these knowledges, these, these are specialised skills, and which are related to particular countries of origin, and sometimes they're not. So, the, and finally, the perceived advantage of recruiting migrants can also include uh, employers' preference for self-regulating and self-sustaining labour force. So, for example, if you have a very casualised sector with a large labour turnover, say you're um, a caterer who maybe might one day might need 50 workers for a big banquet that you've got on, but the next day you don't need them, you might want to employ a migrant, and we did find um, some evidence of this, who, in a supervisory role who can, whose access to those sorts of networks whereby they can get hold of a temporary labour force very quickly without the, the employer having to become involved in it. So employment agencies also have an important role in impacting on the national composition of the workforce. So you might not necessarily have a preference for migrant workers, but given the importance of migrant workers in employment agencies, uh, you might find employers or labour users are using a lot of migrant labour because actually they're using agency labour rather than because they have uh, actively looking for migrants. Thank you, Bridget. Just to briefly recap, the basic question that, that we're asking this morning is whether Britain's growing reliance on migrant workers is inevitable. And in response to that question, Bridget has been talking about uh, the problems we face when actually defining shortages and skills. And Bridget also mentioned the ways in which some employers in some sectors might develop a preference for particular types of migrant workers over other workers. Now I'm going to spend the remaining uh, five to eight minutes or so talking about uh, alternatives to immigration. We hear employers saying there's a labour and skill shortage um, but of course, uh, there's no reason why the existence of a shortage, uh, however we define it, measure it, necessarily constitutes a case for immigration. What are the potential alternatives for addressing these shortages? Well, in theory, there might be various different options. Employers could think about increasing wages and employment, improving employment conditions in order to attract more unemployed workers or inactive workers. That might involve some investment in training. 
in theory, employers could think about uh, making the production process less labor-intensive, i.e. mechanization, for example, or computerization in certain sectors. In theory, employers could think about relocating production to other countries where workers are, are cheaper. Um, or, of course, uh, employers could, employ, um, could decide to employ migrant workers. Now, it's quite clear that not all employers in all sectors have all these options as, as feasible choices. But the point is that many employers will have alternatives that they could consider. So one question for sectoral analysis is, well, what are the feasible alternative responses? What's feasible? Because clearly um, offshoring um, work in restaurants is not going to be feasible. So offshoring is not going to be an option. But the, one of the key issues that we explore in the book is how are these different options and choices interrelated? Now, in theory, again, you can easily see how um, price and relative cost makes a big difference in incentivizing employers to choose uh, a particular response to labor shortages. So, for example, if there is a ready access to cheap migrant workers, employers might not consider alternatives. And if that ready access to cheap migrant workers continues over time, it is possible, again in theory, that um, a sector might develop a dependence on those migrant labor. Now, of course, the challenge is to look at how, how these things play out in practice and in different sectors. The key argument, really, I think, that, that the book makes is that employers don't make their choices in, in a vacuum. Employers are critically influenced in their business and labor recruitment decisions by the wider context of, of government policy, uh, labor market regulation, housing policies, etc. So the point that we are making is that these Britain's wider economic policies flexible labor markets, relatively low regulation of some labor markets, have incentivized employers into recruiting migrant workers as the preferred choice in, in, in certain sectors. So really, if the policy objective, whether we agree with it or not, if the policy objective is to reduce dependence on migrant workers, our key argument is, is that you have to look far beyond immigration policy but try to think about the wider institutional and public policies that help create the demand for migrant works in the first place. So I'll give you two examples. One from the construction sector and one from the social care sector. In the construction sector, the difficulty of finding suitably skilled British workers is critically related to low levels of labour market regulation <coughs> and the absence of a comprehensive vocational education and training system. We have an industry that's um, very low wage, very low productivity. The industry is highly fragmented. Uh, as I said, no comprehensive training system, which has fueled the demand for migrant labor. So if you want to change that, just reducing, trying to change immigration policy isn't going to be a sustainable policy of the long term. What you have to do is try to encourage the whole sector to change its trajectory from this current low wage productivity route to, to onto a trajectory that involves, for example, a more comprehensive training system for British workers. Now, social care is another example where you can show quite clearly how public policies have contributed to creating a demand for particular types of workers, namely low-cost and flexible workers. A lot of social care is publicly funded through, through the local councils, but actually provided by private companies 
and, and the voluntary sector. Now, if you speak to employers in social care homes, they will often be um, very upfront about the reason why they depend so heavily on migrant workers, which is low wages and, and very tough working conditions. And if you, ask, if you ask them, well, what about raising wages as a response to this, the answer you often get is, well, the, the wages we pay are limited by um, the money we get from local councils, i.e. By, by public budgets. Now you can easily see how in these times of austerity, declining budgets, declining budgets for social care, pressures on wages and employment conditions in those types of jobs are going to increase. So there is a demand um, in social care for a flexible and low-waged uh, workforce that in practice is increasingly met by, by migrant labour. Uh, about two-thirds of low-skilled care systems in London are migrant workers. So again, the argument is that you know, if you want to change the sector's dependence on migrant labour, again, we're not, we're not making an argument about whether or not that's a, you know, normally that's a good thing to do, but if you want to do that, you clearly have to think about how you fund social care, how the whole sector is organised, rather than just about changes in immigration policy. So, so to conclude, immigration is often viewed as a discrete area of policy, and the relation between immigration, labour demand and other policy areas is often ignored and unexplored in, in public debates. So we would argue that Britain's increasing reliance on migrant workers is not, as is sometimes argued, simply a consequence of lax immigration controls, of um, exploitative employers, or of lazy Britons who, who won't do their work. The increasing demand for migrant labour is really a response um, and arises from a broad range of institutions and public policies and social Relations. So reducing Britain's reliance on migrant workers will require a comprehensive response that changes some of those wider policies and not just immigration policy. So coming back to the question, is it going to happen? Is it feasible? Well, in the short term, of course, in some sectors, especially in some sectors where demand is driven by uh, public money, declining budgets mean that there will be pressures on wages and conditions in low-wage jobs. So it will be a challenge to turn around the, so the dependence of social care on low-wage workers. In the long term, really, the key question is, does Britain as a country and as an economy want to make this trade-off? Do we want to make those changes in those wider public policies, some more labour market regulation in some sectors, better training, and so on, in exchange for uh, reduced demand for new migrant workers? And that really, I think, is the key question that hasn't been given enough attention about the current, in the current debates about capping immigration.